Last Sunday, we started a short series on marriage and singleness, and we traced marriage from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to consummation. And we saw that God created marriage to image Christ's union with His people. Uh, Today, we get more specific. We're looking at the complementary roles of husband and wife, and specifically the, the husband's role in headship and uh, the wife's role in submission. Some of you enjoy dancing with your spouse. Uh, when couples dance, the, the man leads out, right? And he might have a slight nod of the head, a slight, a gentle touch with the hand, sometimes a lift of the arm to twirl his, his bride. He leads, she follows the two delighting in each other in this marriage dance. Yes, sometimes they step, we step on each other's feet, but the dance goes on. The two must simply learn the other more. Headship and submission is about learning our role in the marriage dance. For those of you who are married, the only time that you are allowed to elbow your spouse this morning is if they're sleeping. (laughs) Otherwise, let's keep them here. Husbands might want to take the extra pew Bibles and stuff under the shirt. Um, If you're married and your spouse isn't here because your spouse doesn't want to be here, I would encourage you to listen carefully today, not only for yourself, but for the sake of your spouse. As we will see later, God may use your actions and your demeanor to save your spouse. If you're single, listen to the Bible's vision for a husband and wife, not only to uphold sound doctrine in the church, but also as a way to serve us married folk. Pray these things for our marriages. When we are out of step with the Scripture, rebuke us, admonish us. Paul was single, but he still admonished married people. God can use you too to speak into our lives as well. And if you're among the youth, you're likely not all that concerned with Uh, right now, with whether to marry. But please capture the Bible's vision for manhood and womanhood now. The world is feeding you a destructive vision of manhood and womanhood. From children's books, TV shows, movies, advertisements, they distort true masculinity and femininity. The entertainment industry takes advantage of women often to sell, to make money. Don't be led astray. Build your life around God's vision for men and women. Just to be clear up front, we're not covering all male and female relationships. We're only covering headship and submission within the marriage. So don't take what I say today and apply it across the board to all male and female relationships. We are staying inside marriage. 
But first things first, let's lay a biblical foundation for headship and submission. And we'll start with creation. God establishes the man and the woman's equal worth and dignity in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When we talk about headship and submission, we are not talking about a distinction in worth or value, as if the man was created superior. We're talking about a distinction in role and responsibility. And that becomes clearer in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 details how God created the man and the woman, and it's from the way God created them that we understand an order and a distinction in role. The husband leads in the dance. The wife follows his lead in the dance. Look first at Genesis 2, verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Notice, the man is created first, and then the woman. And when God creates the woman, he, he does not uh, do it like he did with Adam and taking him from the dust. He makes, he creates the woman from the man himself. It's also clear that God created the woman for the man to be his suitable helper. And in the Bible, both of these observations become the basis for headship in marriage. You can see this very clearly by turning over to, chapter, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is dealing here with how a wife should conduct herself in, in a corporate worship setting like this one. But it's here that we find some of the Bible's clearest teaching on headship. Uh, look first at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head 
of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now look at verse 7, as he's explaining how the the women should act in relation to these head coverings and and whatnot. Verse 7, For a man ought not to, to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So this idea of head or authority, the one with the primary responsibility in in leadership, the head of a wife is, it says, her husband. And that conviction comes from two things that Paul observes back in Genesis chapter 2. The woman was made from the man and the woman was made for the man. Now some people will argue that headship is the result of the fall. That it was not part of God's original design. But the clear meaning of 1 Corinthians 11 is that it was part of God's original creation design. Rooted in the way he made them in Genesis 2. Another significant passage is Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22. You can turn to the right in your Bibles to find Ephesians 5. We'll look at verses 22 to 24. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So again, we're seeing that the husband is the head of the wife. But what's added by Ephesians is this. Headship is not only consistent with God's original creation design, it's also consistent with the way a marriage should image Christ's relationship to his people, the church. Which means that when the husband serves rightly as as the head and the wife serves rightly as the submissive helper here, they do so to display something incredible. They do so to display the goodness of God in creation, and they do so to display the goodness of God in redemption. Once we did not live our lives in submission to Jesus, but now, by God's grace, we do. This is part of God's glory in redemption. Making people who were once not in submission to Jesus, bringing them into submission to Jesus. And when this husband and wife relationship is, when this dance is working rightly, we reflect what God has done there. Titus chapter 2 verse 5 gives an even further purpose. It says, Older women are to train the young women... In multiple areas, but one of, one of them is for them to be submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So proper headship and submission really display three things. Not only do they, does it display, the, display the, the goodness of God in creation, 
and the glory of God in redemption, it also displays the authority of God in His revelation, what He speaks to us in His Word. It says that the Word of God may not be reviled. Now, that's all wonderful and and glorious. But we know how difficult it is to follow through on this side of Adam's sin. As we noted last week, sin turns the created order upside down, and as a result, headship and submission get seriously distorted. In Genesis 3.16, we find that part of the curse is is a strained relationship between the husband and wife, It says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, the best way to make sense of this desire is to read a bit further in Genesis 4, 7. So this is before Cain murders Abel. And God comes to Cain, and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. Same language that he uses in chapter 3, verse 16. Its desire is for you. So its desire is to control you, that is, to rule you. But you must rule over it. So also with the woman. After the fall, she will attempt to control her husband, to rule over him. And that could be for various reasons. That could be because of a lack of trust. Maybe he is harsh. Maybe instead of leading her with gentleness, he rules with a heavy hand and she is suspicious of what he's going to do next to her. Maybe it's out of a desire to protect herself from further disappointment. Maybe it's just an outright desire to do whatever she wants. The point is that the harmony that was once present in headship and submission now suffers. The relationship suffers as both the husband and wife compete with each other. Instead of both of them living for God's kingdom, they now compete to live for their own kingdoms. They're not enjoying the dance as God intended. Perhaps you have felt the effects of the fall in your own marriage. Something he did really did shatter your trust. Maybe you feel like putting her in her place, so to speak. Maybe you feel ripped apart by competing agendas for life and how long to be in school and where you're going to live and when to have kids and how much to spend and whose side of the family gets priority this year at Thanksgiving. There's disagreement that lingers for days instead of close intimacy. Instead of resting in your identity in Christ, you you, you feel like your worth is threatened by the slightest critique or alternative counsel from your spouse. And so you respond and send with words that send daggers to the heart. Brothers and sisters, we have all fallen short of the glory of God in this. We have sinned. We have rebelled. We all need to be made new. And that's exactly what God does for His people in the gospel. Through a relationship with Jesus, He can and does make us new. 
He loved us and sent His Son to die for us, that we might have new life, that we might become new creations. Apart from having a new heart, headship and submission that honor Jesus are impossible. We need forgiveness and grace to live in these roles rightly and humbly. That's why Paul's instructions, if you go back to Ephesians 5 and just look more carefully, that's why Paul's instructions to the husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 come to us in the context of the Gospel. Don't get Ephesians 5 and lose Ephesians. And what he's trying to say. What comes before Ephesians 5 are many glorious things like this. That God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. God raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places and on and on Paul goes. We even see in chapter 4, verse 24, that we can put off the old self and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Proper headship and submission are possible because God is in the business of making us new creations. He clothes us with Jesus so that we can bear Jesus' image to one another, even as husband and wife. Or Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And part of the Spirit's work, it says, is that He helps us submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So God hasn't left us alone in our role as husband or wife. He is present by the Spirit to give us every grace we need. Now, if that's true, if, if that is the way He wants husbands and wives to dance together as they image Christ's union with the church, and if we get every grace through Christ to do so, then what does this headship and submission actually look like? Let's concentrate first on the husband's role as head of the wife. Husbands, you got, you got the Bibles there. Now's the time. If you don't have them there, now's the time to put them there. To be sure, it is a disgrace to Jesus Christ and to the church and to women everywhere when men abuse their authority and oppress women and do it sometimes even under the guise of biblical headship. So let's be sure we have a healthy perspective of what this headship actually is. First of all, biblical headship is not domineering, but servant-hearted. It is not domineering, but servant-hearted. Never does the Bible command husbands, you be the head of your wife. 
Bible does not command husbands that way. Rather, it commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The husband doesn't exercise his headship by going around playing the headship card over the time, all the time. You have to play the headship card, you're not being a good head. commands the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The Bible explains headship with the servant-hearted, sacrificial love of Jesus. Jesus Christ loved His bride with such abandon that He willingly gave Himself up for her. Headship follows in the footsteps of Jesus' love. I once heard a pastor explain, explain it this way. Was there ever a question about who was the head when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. Not a question in their minds. Biblical headship is also not passive, but proactive. It is not passive, but proactive. We, we saw this last week. Passivity has roots in self-centeredness and leads to satanic consequences. Remember, Adam watched the serpent lead Eve into sin. Instead of crushing the serpent's head, Adam let the serpent keep hissing his lies. This is not what we observe in Jesus Jesus takes initiative in rescuing and protecting His bride. He comes. He crushes the serpent's head. He speaks truth. He works till His sweat becomes like drops of blood. And then He endures the cross to win her. Brothers, when we are in Christ, we bear His image. We bear the image of this man who gave Himself up for His bride. Biblical headship is also not harsh, but honoring. It is not harsh, but honoring. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Then 1 Peter 3.7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So true headship is not dismissive and insensitive to the needs of your wife. Headship honors the woman as a fellow heir to everything in Christ. In sum, headship means carrying the primary responsibility to lead the marriage with Christ-like character. means carrying the primary responsibility to lead the marriage with Christ-like character. And that kind of leadership plays out in at least four ways. This might be four different ways that this love is manifesting itself in the relationship. First, it includes moral and spiritual leadership. The Lord commanded the man not to eat from the tree. But He did that while the woman was yet to be created. After the man and the woman sinned, the Lord then holds the man accountable first. 
Ephesians 5.25 implies that the husband wash his wife with the word, for this is the way Christ washes the church. Brothers, this will especially include pursuing God in his word. You will not fulfill your calling to lead your wife if Christ is not leading you. Christ must be your head before you are hers. What's best for your marriage dance is that you're leading your wife to imitate Jesus' steps. Not whatever steps you want to take. But Jesus' steps. Once you've learned from Jesus, then give courageous counsel that moves the marriage in a Godward direction. We cannot yield to our own sinful passions and we cannot yield to the sinful passions of our wife. Our role is to lead in such a manner that more and more, over, over time, the marriage better images Christ's union with His church. That means leading your wife in godly choices for the marriage, for the home, what you do with your time. It includes taking initiative and planning. You know, is, is the schedule that you are in healthy for your marriage? What's it really worth if you, if you gain a degree and an extra paycheck, but you did it all as if you were still single? If you have children, the burden of their spiritual growth is on you, not on your wife. Your wife's spiritual growth becomes your priority too. Plan times to read the Word and pray with her. Every night we try to shut things down in our houses 30 minutes before bedtime. Turn off the screens, close the laptops, brush teeth, whatever. The point is to give ourselves time together, to read the Word together and pray. Right now it's just, we just read one psalm together per night. Sometimes we discuss it. Sometimes we pray it for ourselves. Occasionally, one of us might fall asleep in the middle of it. We have those kinds of evenings. It doesn't have to be polished. Trust me, my leadership is not polished. It doesn't have to be polished. But is there simply leadership? A motivating influence to treasure Christ together more. And laugh together when it's not polished. I remember one night, you know, reading through 1 Kings together. And, you know, it'll, it's got, it repeats this clause several times over. That, and such and such, the lives in such and such a king are written down in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And I'm reading along and it's just, the life in such and such a king is written in the chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> and my wife loses it. And we have lots of laughter together in that moment. I couldn't read anything else. And in coming weeks, I couldn't read Chronicles of the Kings of anything without laughing together. It doesn't have to be polished. But is leadership there? We must also lead in reconciliation. Brothers, we can't let separation remain. Maybe you've been there. You know, you have a little argument. You think you're right. She thinks she's right. You get short and sharp, and she leaves the room hurt. 
Husbands, you have to be the one that takes the first step step toward reconciliation. We can't sit there and insist on our own rights and attempt to justify our sinful reactions. We must look to Christ as our righteousness. We'll talk more about this next week. We must take her hand, humble ourselves, and gently acknowledge she is not the enemy. Our own sin is the enemy. My lack of humility and being willing to listen to her is the enemy. A second aspect to our leadership, brothers, is physical and spiritual protection. Physical and spiritual protection. Adam failed to protect Eve from the serpent, but Christ gave himself up to disarm the rulers and the authorities against us. Husbands reflect Christ's protection of the church when we protect our wives. Uh, They weren't married yet, but another couple in the Old Testament, Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is pictured as the ideal man who protects and provides for Ruth. Of course, he becomes appointed to Christ. But he allows Ruth to glean in his fields. And something else he does, he charges the other young men in the field, you better not lay a hand on her. He protects her. So whether spiritually or physically, headship includes protection. We we must take the initiative in protecting our wives. Even if she's a black belt in karate, maybe she's a police officer, you get out of bed and you kick his tail if there's somebody robbing the house. It means providing care when she's sick or weak. It means removing potential temptations when she's had a long and hard day. We give her times of rest and we work for them. We take the kids. We we do what we can. Most importantly, we must pray against the enemy's attacks. The serpent is crafty, brothers. He will go after your wife just like he went after Eve. Be watchful of his tactics. Speak gospel truth. Keep yourself pure and pray for her. Third, leadership will also include provision. Provision. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. This was before he created Eve. In Genesis 3.19, the Lord says to the man, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. In light of what the Lord also says to the woman, this indicates that the primary responsibility of breadwinner belongs to the husband. Ephesians 5.29 implies the same thing when it says that the husband must nourish and cherish his wife. Nourish. Now that doesn't mean that a wife cannot work to earn income. The woman in Proverbs 31 does just exactly that for her family. Priscilla was also a tent maker alongside her husband Aquila in Acts chapter 18, verse 3. All I'm saying is that under normal circumstances, the man shouldn't put his wife in a situation where she feels like the weight of the physical provision rests solely on her. That, that if she wasn't going to do it, then they wouldn't eat. 
the husband, the idea is that the husband is, is doing everything he can to make sure the wife and the family are provided for. We work hard to put bread on the table. Lastly, our leadership includes enjoying and gladdening our wives. Enjoying and gladdening our wives. I mean, Adam uses poetry, brothers, over his wife to describe his spouse. Deuteronomy 24.5 states this. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall gladden his wife whom he has taken. Imagine, this is a year-long honeymoon. A whole year to gladden his wife. Now that law applies differently under the new covenant, of course. But it reveals how much God is concerned for our joy in the marriage and provides wisdom concerning the husband's devotion to his wife, and in this case, her gladness in particular. Proverbs 5 encourages the husband to delight himself in the wife of his youth. Song of Songs provides an intimate portrayal of the husband enchanting his wife with beautiful words. Ephesians 5.29 says that the husbands are not only to nourish, we covered that, but also to cherish their wives. Brothers, you can get really creative here. Notes on the mirror, holding her hand regularly, a date night, a surprise phone call from work, affirming her in Christ more often than you criticize her. Setting aside funds in the budget just for her to spend on things that she enjoys. Enjoy and gladden your wife. A professor of mine named Bob Bernard, he's with Jesus now. He died a few years ago from cancer. But I remember watching Dr. Bernard. He would, every day, he would walk around campus with his wife. He would just hold her hand, not down here. He, it's like they were still walking out from, from getting married, just holding her hand so dearly, talking to her. One time I saw her kiss him goodbye as he was coming to class to teach. And when he turned around, he did a double heel click. This is an old man. Did a double heel click after and winked at her and, and then came to teach class. She made him so happy. His delight in her imaged God's delight in us who are in Christ. That's what marriage is about. In Christ, God delights in us. Dr. Bernard danced well with his wife, and their dance was a brilliant pointer to Christ and the church. There's grace for these things, brothers. Christ is in you. The Bible calls him the hope of glory. Let's seek to imitate his selfless and sacrificial love. Let's lead in this dance well. Let's make submission a joy for our wives. 
as it is a joy for us to submit to our Savior and Lord Jesus. What about the wife's role as submissive helper? What does the wife's role look like in the marriage dance? According to Ephesians 5, the wife's submission to her husband paints a picture of the church's submission to Christ. God designed the wife's calling to image the beautiful reality of what happens to all of us when God saves us, namely we submit to Jesus. When a godly woman submits to her husband, her life becomes a beautiful portrait that reminds us that Jesus is worthy of all of our obedience. And I am so thankful to have wives like this at Redeemer Church. I often learn from you, wives. I especially learn from my own this way of how worthy Jesus is of our obedience. But just like headship, we should clarify a few things. For instance, biblical submission is not ultimate submission, but submission that is always in relation to Christ. It is not ultimate submission, but submission always in relation to Christ. The husband's authority over the wife is a derived authority under Christ. Wherever his authority fails to faithfully represent Christ, the wife should not submit to him. Sisters, do not obey your husband if he is asking you to follow him into sin. Nor should you feel like you can't say anything when his leadership is out of sync with God's word. There are ways to patiently share your perspective. Proverbs 31 Woman, this is Proverbs 31, 26, says she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. There's a way to speak while also affirming a desire to follow his lead, but only as his lead doesn't compromise your obedience to Jesus. It is good for your husband to hear that Jesus is Lord and that he is not. And let me just say here that if you're in an abusive situation, you must expose your husband's sin and get help. Submission is not something that says you just sit by and let let him keep doing what he is doing. The church submits to Christ, but Christ is never abusive to his wife. And Christ has put other authority structures in place to care for you, to help care for you. If you are in that situation, the elders and the church are here to listen to you and to help you wherever we can. Biblical submission is also not merely an outward action, but an inward disposition. It's not merely an outward action, but an inward disposition. 1 Peter 3. If you want to go to 1 Peter, we'll be there a couple times, 1 Peter. Chapter 3. This is verse 3 to 5. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, 
But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. So submission isn't just outward conformity while still seething against your husband on the inside. It goes much deeper. It is a heart attitude, and and that heart attitude is born from hoping in God. Let's keep reading. 1 Peter 3, 5 says, This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So biblical submission is also not fearful, but it hopes in God. It's not fearful, but it hopes in God. Submission doesn't mean blind trust in a mere man, but great faith in your sovereign Lord. And by submitting to your husband, you're ultimately submitting to Christ, who knows what is best for you, and who never takes his gaze off of you, and who will love you to the end. Even the poor decisions that your husband will make, you must remember that they are not outside of God's control, nor will they come to you apart from God's love and God's care for you through those times. This is a kind of thing that looks like, the, again, the, the woman in Proverbs 31, where she, she smiles at the future. Sometimes it says uh, that she laughs at the future because her soul rests in God's sovereign orchestration of all things for your good and His glory. It's hard to submit when the heart is not hoping in God. So I want to encourage you, sisters, just to turn to the Word often and let the true husband, Jesus Christ, speak to you in His Word, hope every day. So submission is always in relation to Christ. It's it's an inward matter and, and full of hope in God. And the goal through it all is to mirror the church's submission to Christ. So this is a remarkable calling, sisters. It's a window through which we're reminded of how the church follows Christ in the marriage dance. But let's get even more specific. What are, specific, what are some things the wife's role includes? First, it includes following your husband's lead. Following your husband's lead. This is uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. He uses Sarah as an example. And it says there that she obeyed Abraham. Also, Ephesians 5, verse 24 says that that, uh, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Of course, we've already seen that this excludes situations where the husband would be leading his wife into sin. But where that's not the case, the wife defers to his lead in the dance. That may mean you must give up certain goals and life preferences that you would have preferred to keep. But the husband you have is the man you agreed to follow as God's word transforms him. Now we know that not all believing wives have believing husbands. Not all believing wives have obedient husbands. And instructions like this certainly present challenges 
and often great grief, sometimes great frustration. How does a wife follow a husband's lead at all if he either doesn't know Jesus or isn't walking with Jesus? I would say that God knows your situation, dear sisters, and this is, this is the exact situation that God writes about in 1 Peter 3. He inspired 1 Peter 3 for you. He is concerned for you. Yes, there may be times when your allegiance to Jesus will conflict with what your husband desires for you. In that, in that case, you always follow Christ. But Peter's point is that where you can follow his lead and not sin against Christ, to do so. And do so with the hope that he might be won over to Christ. That's what he says. Look back at 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word, By the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Sister, your respectful and pure conduct can be an instrument in God's hand to lead your husband to obey Jesus. It's also true for the way it affects believing husbands. I don't know how many times that my wife's gentle and this this spirit that he's talking about here has led me to reconsider how I am leading her. And isn't that what your calling is about here? Sisters, imaging to others the church's submission to Jesus. Your submission is to be like a theater wherein your husband is sitting back watching in your life that Jesus is worthy of your obedience and that Jesus is worthy of His obedience as well. This might be the way that you're playing your part in the Great Commission. This is your evangelistic role. You want to treat him in such a way that causes him to ask, what is this hope that you have? What's in this Bible that you're reading? What is it with this Jesus that keeps you walking so faithfully to me when I am not very faithful to you? Second, a wife's role includes helping her husband. So this is going back to Genesis 2. Remember that God created the woman for the man to be his suitable helper. And this is a glorious role. Did you know that the term helper that's used to describe Eve is also used to describe God as a helper in other places in Scripture? This is one way the wife can image God in her calling alongside of her husband. In her book, Helper by Design... Elise Fitzpatrick offers some questions to help wives take steps toward helping their husbands. Here are just a few of them, a few questions. 
In what specific ways has God called my husband to rule? And how can I help him fulfill that calling? With whom has he been called to relate? What would helping him in these relationships look like? If you're scrambling to write all these down, you can either get her book in the book note today, or uh, this manuscript will be online uh, by Tuesday mornings. So what would helping him in these relationships look like? How has God's calling to reproduce been answered in our family? How can I help him with mentoring or nurturing children, whether physical or spiritual? What does my husband spend time thinking about or reflecting on? How could my help sharpen his thinking? And trust me, we need a lot of that. Our, our thinking needs to be sharpened. Or how could my help cause it to be more productive? What can I do to bring godly joy into our relationship? What influences could I bring to bear upon him that would help him glorify God and reflect him more fully? What I appreciate about these questions is that they don't squelch the wife's gifts and personality. They give them a context. God has designed every woman in a unique and a beautiful way. To bear God's image and to use her gifts to make much of God. That doesn't go away when you get married. It just gives it a context now. A new context. Another context. Those gifts are now especially used to help her husband. Not just for her husband's sake, but for the marriage's sake. It's not just about the husband. It's about the marriage imaging Christ and the church. Lastly, the wife's role also includes respect and affirmation. Respect and affirmation of the husband and his leadership. Ephesians 5.33, Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We communicate respect with words, tone of voice, and countenance. Words, tone of voice, and countenance. Let's take a situation here. Let's say you disagree with your husband on how to spend this upcoming Thanksgiving. What family to go to? Where, how are you going to spend the time? And perhaps it's not an issue of sin necessarily, but you really wish he'd consider some, some other factors before making a decision. He's not considering them, though. He doesn't even see some of them. How do you respond? Do you utter under your breath, how could he do this to me? It then progresses to several eye rolls throughout the day. Strategic. Maybe the silent treatment. 
until finally on the way to his parents would have been nice if you had thought about did you even care? Not only have you not shown respect, but that attitude isn't one that affirms his role as head. So cut two, same situation, but what if you first committed the situation to Christ in prayer? What if you then thought of how your role as helper could help him be a better husband by considering those other factors? And then with that contentment in Christ, you say, Dear, I am really struggling. I'm really struggling to follow your lead about Thanksgiving. If you think this is best, we'll do it. But I'm really struggling here. And there are some other factors that you may not have considered. Can we find some time to talk about them tonight? This is very different and very beautiful. Not only has she affirmed his leadership and her desire to follow his lead, but she is fulfilling her role as helper and making the marriage dance an even better portrayal of Christ in the church. So to sum up, a wife's submission means following, affirming, and helping her husband in ways that help the marriage image the church's submission to Christ in a perfect marriage. This would all go smoothly. Submission would be a joy and come easily, right? Surely submission would come easy when a man loves his wife just as Christ loves the church. But we all know that the perfect is yet to come. We still live in a broken world. And as a husband, I know how often I'm faced with my own sin in marriage. But the same sinful flesh that wages war in husbands against the glory of Christ lives in wives also. How then can we actually make it? How can we keep our vows to one another? How will we shine the gospel light among a a people so darkened by convenience and divorce? How will we actually keep this dance going? We enter God's rescue plan, the gospel. Every day. The gospel is the good news about God acting in the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. God's grace didn't leave us in our sinful state. While we were still sinners, he loved us and sent his son to rescue us. Even though we walked away from him, Jesus still came to us. Even though we deserved punishment, Jesus suffered under God's wrath in our place. And God's grace went further still. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day so that just as he lives to God in his resurrection body, we too might live to God. In other words, God's grace is greater than all of our sin. The gospel is the greatest love story of all time and the Bible calls it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you're here today without Christ, please consider your desperate need for a Savior. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But the gospel isn't just for the unbeliever. It is especially for the believer. Husbands, we need to see our great high priest 
who opened the way for us to approach the throne of grace in times of need. And there are many times of need. Wives, you need to be strengthened by the true bridegroom, the Lord Jesus himself who never fails and who always stands to protect you and fulfill his word to you. So let me encourage all of us to draw strength from the gospel often. Or better, draw strength from the person of Jesus often, who is revealed in the gospel. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so much so that eternity will echo with celebrations over the grace he showed you again and again and again. Why don't we pray together?